Hello and welcome to Lightmap from Sifter. On Lightmap, we explore what it takes to make video games and interactive media, and you meet creative people from all around the world, and that includes developers, artists, musicians, researchers, and more. My name is Gianni. Thank you for joining us. Our guest on Lightmap this time is Zalavir Nelson Jr. from Strange Scaffold. You might know Zalavir from Hypnospace Outlaw or Space Warlord Organ Trading Simulator or an airport for aliens currently run by dogs, but it's a new strand game uh, of the Kojima kind uh, that we're talking about this week. G'day, Zalavir. Thank you so much for having me. We're going to learn more about Witch Stranding. It's a moody, mouse-controlled mission to save a forest from despair. But before we get into it, let's find out what's been making the news this week with the top stories on the latest episode of Walkthrough, Sifter's news podcast. Hi, I'm Fiona Bartholomew. And I'm Kyle Paletto. And here are the top stories this week on Walkthrough, Sifter's weekly news podcast for Sunday, 10th of March. We have the highlights from this week's Xbox Partner Preview. Roguelike deck builder Bellatro pulled from stores due to misunderstanding about its gambling content. A 2.4 million US dollar settlement has killed the two biggest Switch and 3DS emulators. And this year's BAFTA award nominations are here. You can get every episode of Walkthrough for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or on our website, sifter.com.au, every Sunday. You're listening to Lightmap, interesting conversations with video game creators. Man, I can't believe Sean Connery would go on a rampage and kill all of those people. I'm glad that walkthrough is giving the essential information that uh, folks in Australia need. Which strandings? is a uh, experimental 2D open world game, uh, the second ever strand type game about taking, about uh, being a uh, wisp of light in a forest corrupted by a witch and restoring it uh, bit by bit with intentional actions, transporting uh, and creating new pathways across the world, uh, supporting the creatures who have been destroyed by the witch's influence and in general um choosing what path the forest will take in the future one act at a time well kojima actually said when uh death stranding came out that he wanted to create a new genre why did you want to make a strand type game what was it about that idea that inspired you to make this game unfortunately i realized we were making a strand type game by accident so uh we were in the middle of um the development of space warlord organ trading simulator uh before we finished the game we had to take a few weeks break uh to figure out what things the game would launch on we still had uh, what's called biz dev to do talking to different platforms figuring out who would be our partner for it and in that interim period i suddenly in a fugue state i'll admit uh got very angry at the concept of interface and management games the fact that they were limited to the four uh corners of a screen the fact that if you're playing football manager you can't reach over and physically pick up the phone and then talk to your players or if you have to uh deal with all these other quite physical tangible interactions that they were all deeply abstracted and hidden in a thousand sub menus i don't know whether the right terminology would be 
that I was consumed or whether I saw the light, but I was driven suddenly by this idea of in space world organ training simulator. We have this physical inventory. It's about um, 40 spaces. So it's like five, I think it's a five by eight grid. Uh, and I saw in my head this vision of a game where the world was composed entirely of those inventory squares. Um, and it was an interface game that extended beyond the borders of your screen. Uh, the programmer for Space World Organ Training Simulator, Samuel Chayat, he's the creator of the desktop goose. He has this passion as a technologist of finding ways to make us think about and act more intentionally with the digital interfaces we use because large corporations tend to strip away those layers over time, turning them into more and more quote unquote functional devices, but also less special in the process. You end up working around the system instead of the system working around you. Uh, and yeah, using uh, our mutual passion for doing very weird things, uh, we discussed this idea of building um, a game entirely changing the way you relate to your computer mouse, where you could reach over and suddenly you're pulling something from one side of a open world and physically dragging it to another place. Um, as we went down this road and encountered a number of buckwild technical challenges, uh, we were exploring what exact setting this would be occurring within, uh, how would the game be constructed, what did this all amount to? And it hit me like a bolt of lightning as we were in the middle of those discussions. Oh, damn. We're making a Shran type game. You're the three traits of a, of a Shran type game that you are nurturing a world, that you are nurturing a world by transporting things within it. And that the thing that ties all of those layers together and makes them meaningful, uh, exciting, different, reactive is that there's a physicality underlying everything. We were building a strand game and we uh, briefly all as an entire team panicked about that for 10 minutes and then said, okay, let's with this uh, revelation, figure out exactly what that means. And yeah, I think uh, uh, like the, the strange and wild world of which strandings at this point comes to uh, speech for itself. So let's talk a little bit about what you, you do in this game. You talked a little bit about how you're, you're picking things up and moving around, but what is the sort of objective and, and what you, is this world that you're trying to explore? So this forest is inspired by things like Coraline and Miyazaki classics, uh, Ghibli films. The objective of being in this world is to ultimately confront the witch, uh, confront the witch and care for this place because it has no one else. You can do that confrontation with love, steadily building up and supporting the forest, cleansing, directly working against the action that the uh, witch has perpetrated in this place, uh, step by intentional step. Um, or we've got these things in the game. I'm not going to spoil the exact form they take, but uh, I'll just say that every single character within the world, including the witch, can be killed permanently and they will never come back. So you do have a choice. Uh, are you going to 
uh, cleanse this place uh, via your actions and intentionality and relationship with it? Or are you going to speed run taking a Glock to uh, the witch's head? The choice is yours. Um, I, I want to talk a bit about that physicality because I never felt more connected to my mouse than playing this game. Um, as you're moving through this space, you are sort of just swiping around and, and you know, moving back and forth. And it actually really reminded me of the old days when mice had physical balls in the bottom of it at points because it felt like it had been jammed up with dust and I had to open it up and take it out, which, of course, it's not anymore. Can you tell me about capturing that feeling of inertia and weight when you're moving through this world? It turns out that your mouse is constantly uh, recording and using some interesting information. Um, and the vast majority of programs never do anything with that information. Your mouse is just a cursor. You are just a meat body controlling the real input. So uh, with Strange Scaffold's approach, trying to make games better, faster, cheaper, and healthier with this very human perspective. Uh, yeah, we, we looked at the information that your mouse is recording, how fast, uh, or rather capturing, how fast the mouse is going, uh, the rate of acceleration, um, the direction that it's going, all these uh, different factors. And then, yeah, built intentional obstacles and elements of the world to take advantage of those factors. So when you're moving your mouse through uh, water, we can apply a bit of drift to that movement and suddenly you have this very strange, almost out of body sensation to uh, seeing the mouse go further than you pushed it, uh, knowing it's not a bug. The idea that, yeah, you're now physically embodying this thing utterly changes your relationship with it. Uh, and as long as you do so in a healthy way that does not destroy your wrist in the process. Yeah, we, we found that every person who ended up touching the game had a more intentional relationship with their uh, mouse afterwards. Like we have the footage of just people using their mouse in subtly different ways afterwards. And there is very few things more satisfying than seeing that really tangible impact on the lives and perspectives of your players like that. You mentioned technical challenges. Can you give us a few examples of sort of putting this all together? How did that work? The original version of the game, uh, as, as proposed, as we started to go down the road of building it, uh, some terms started to get bandied about in the team, such as millions of game objects and not able to be physically simulated on modern uh, technology uh, and to build this uh, thing and bring it to life one of the challenges was we said okay we can't place every tree in this forest we can't uh, make all this 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 space interactable uh, as well how do we get over the fact that uh, this should not be able to run on modern computers or computers within even say the next five years uh, and our solution for that is that technically the game world doesn't exist. Uh, there is a layer uh, of uh, kind of purplish uh, floor tiles that just exists in this infinite plane and void. And using uh, math, uh, as well as some unique shenanigans with our tool set, 
we don't, for example, place a set of trees, we say a set of tree tiles with this seed and distribution would exist here if that were to exist in this configuration. And what that means is instead of millions, uh, even billions of game objects, we have hundreds, thousands. Uh, and existentially, you are walking through a world that technically uh, yeah, does, doesn't exist. It's just been defined uh, via math, uh, created via very intentional parameters. And uh, computer's like, oh, there would be a tree here, wouldn't there? I was like, that would be nice if there were one, uh, right? Like, we should do that. We also, from what I understand, have to run an instance of Wolfenstein 3D uh, every frame of the game. So uh, the same formula in core like tech used for Wolfenstein 3D is necessary to bring uh, the cursor and world of the game to life. Um, and that's running every single frame of the game, which just kind of tells you that at a certain point, we lost our minds. We even called, uh, we had a, a certain point we had to find terminology for um, what our uh, chunks of information would look like. And because I thought it would be funny because these chunks of information are called, because uh, these chunks of information take the form of squares, I said, what if we called them orbs? Wouldn't that be like a goof and a giggle? Um, eight, nine, 10 months later, it's not a giggle anymore. It's not Gianni. It is uh, an act made in hubris. The joke was on me. Oh, dear. Um, I, I'm fascinated to hear that Wolfenstein 3D runs on it because they pretty much can run that on anything. So why not run it as many times as you possibly can? That's pushing the limits of everything. Um, I'm curious, telling this the story in this world, and it's a world that people explore on their own, and I felt as I was playing, you start tentatively. You're working out there. Things feel very dangerous, but as you kind of get your feet, um, you, you start to become more confident. You understand where you're going. You build up a bit of a mental map of where you're at. Tell me about the story you wanted to tell by having that sort of experience as people were playing through the game. I think one of the big ones was just this idea that when you are confronted by a large, overwhelming and corrupting force. Um, the thing that causes change is often not one uh, massive moment in which uh, a cutscene plays and you storm the Bastille. Uh, change takes the form of a number of uh, rebellious and intentional actions made day after sometimes exhausting day. So when you are, when you have systems that naturally rely on you bringing things to life uh, and pursuing a course of action, uh, sometimes that arduous, uh, in, in, in the case of arduous journeys, bringing a pair of berries across the forest so you can feed a raccoon that otherwise would not have access to that resource. Um, yeah, I believe strongly in gameplay and narrative having a tight cohesion and there ultimately ended up being no better story to tell uh, than one of a witch who rules a forest, uh, whether or not she enjoys it anymore, 
and systems which are now just taking their own course, corruption that just continues to spread. And you being a agent to specifically make that change uh, occur. Uh, I actually have a document full of all of the potential settings that were considered for the game. Um, we considered like an artist commune and you played as the muse, bringing people what they needed to make their art. We've considered bringing uh, the world being uh, a uh, inside of your computer and you're restoring and uh, dealing with living computer components. Uh, we considered uh, you being in a war zone and being like this like hijacked delivery drone assisting refugees. And uh, ultimately this marriage of the real world and the surreal, um, the magic and the mundane, the magic, the mundane, even of your own computer technology, it just, it just fit. This world can seem pretty bleak, but I'm curious, what are the sort of elements of hope that you've included in this? Is it just those little actions? Is that really where people, because, you know, some of the stories you hear when you're helping the characters in this game. It's sad, man. It's sad. You know, you just sort of feel like a window into the into the soul of this rabbit who's just, you know, having a real hard time of it. I think the hope uh, piece of uh, what Strandings is, that is especially relevant in the time period that we're in now, is just that despite the pain, these people still exist here. Uh, for context, I use the term people because the cute little creatures you see the vast majority of them are transformed human beings who stumbled into here or were drawn in in some way and have not found a way out. Uh, they are going to be an owl or a uh, fox forever. So the hope is not in the sense that uh, even you appear in a, in a matter of speaking. Uh, you are not itself an embodiment of hope. You're an agent of hope. You're an agent of action, but uh, you are not the hopeful element, the thing that causes hope, the thing that sometimes is what keeps me going is the idea that you're still here. Despite it all, that rabbit having a very hard time continues to live continues to exist here can uh, and every day that they do exist is a day that they have the opportunity to witness change and maybe even be a part of it um it's a message i think that's uh, incredibly relevant for today's world and on the worst days um which stranding says actually ended up being a nice thing to remind myself that Hope does not exist in the absence of pain. It exists in the endurance of it. Mm. It's one of the things that always reminds me when, you know, bad things happen, you know, your life can grow beyond that point. And that's how you can move through when you experience grief or trauma, if you've got a supportive network around you. And this is what it reminded me as I was playing this game, because the world expands, your idea of the world expands as you connect with more people, as you move through. Um, I'm really curious, um, 
Tell me about what it's like to see people play this game because it's starting. It's as we're speaking. It's it's not out in the hands of everyone um, to play, but some of the reviews are starting to come in. And you know, normally for games like this, I imagine you would be taking it all around for people to, you know, wiggle their mouse around in, in events and things like that. What is it like um, thinking about that experience um, and putting a game out in a world where um, you know there's a various different ways to play this game now? That's all entirely valid. Um, one thing that is uh, a major difference is uh, I don't have to look in a blind panic as somebody uh, steps up to play the game at an event, ignores the dispenser of hand sanitizer right next to the mouse and just starts going to town with their flesh fingers. I uh, am glad that neither me nor anyone else necessarily has to endure that at this point in time. But uh, as far as releasing the game and even testing it, I'll say it's it's bad. It feels bad to exist during an interesting time. One would hope that their times could be less interesting. Um, but with that in mind, I would say that it's been really an honor testing it within forms that are inherently more intimate, releasing it in a world that is uh, where so many of the experiences that are going to be had around it are not going to be communal. Because uh, one thing I'll reveal in uh, some uh, focus testing that our publisher did was an earlier version of the game. At certain points, players were so scared uh, of this fundamental interaction with their mouse and of getting into a bad situation, trying to weave between corrupt uh, t- between patches of ground corrupted by uh, the witch's influence that they started to break down and cry. Uh, when you're reading back a report from, a, from an agency saying, here are the testers that started crying and when, that's not necessarily the uh, encouraging, uplifting feedback you want, but there was something very powerful about the sense that those moments of vulnerability or visceral interaction with the systems would not necessarily have been present in a world where a bunch of people are milling around a convention floor. Um, In the experience I've had looking at footage of which trainings test footage, especially because the mouse directly represents the player and what their hands are doing, even watching streams and videos ends up being uh, feelings somewhat uh, invasive. Uh, this is someone else's experience. This is where their hands are going. This is where their eyes are going. You can't see their eyes or eye line, but based off of how they're moving, you can kind of tell. Um, the experience of releasing which strandings in a largely remote world Uh, where people are going to buy the game at home and download it anyway, is one of uh, indirect connection, strands, if you will, uh, that end up feeling very uh, intimate and powerful uh, as a result of that context. I I feel honored uh, to have released this thing and that people um, have the ability to express their vulnerability Uh, in these spaces because it's increasingly apparent that in a lot of ways and forms you aren't necessarily allowed to do that without some additional aspect of performance as well 
uh, without, can't really do like a really personal TikTok without in some way thinking about the algorithm, who's going to eventually see it, how that presents a picture of you to the world. Um, though Forrest doesn't care uh, who you are, it cares about what you do. And it provides a very healing space to just exist in as a result. I'm just curious, was there a consideration um, with accessibility for this game? Because there are people who, who can't use a mouse in the way that feels like uh, it would be required, or as, as I played it, it felt like it was quite tricky for me. Um, and I'm curious, as, what was the considerations around that? And you know, what accommodations do you put in to allow people to play this um, how they can? We did plan around accessibility in terms of the uh, challenges, in terms of how the world is even constructed. Uh, I believe very strongly in accessibility from the ground up. So looking for text sizes, uh, text readability, you can have that in an options menu, but if that's just a core piece of the game, that ends up working even better and benefiting all players as a result. So we, uh, continue to read up on best practices as time goes and whatever development resources we have to bring those best practices to bear and whatever the vision of the game will support, uh, we put in. But at a certain point, it we've tried kind of dozens of ways of doing a, a, like a very like light mode or maybe you just have no friction going through the world um, in a given uh, mode of play. And the thing that brought all of that together is that it just felt dead. Uh, the entire game did not provide any um, sort of the core experience that um, players who could uh, play through the game uh, hours at a time uh, without uh, joint or wrist pain. Um, it wasn't providing that same experience to other players. So we took a hard look at the game again uh yeah it even like broke the game in certain instances like technically it was uh a really sad and difficult challenge to get around because we wanted to see what does an accessibility mode here look like ultimately we didn't find any one that worked so i took a second crack at the entire world of the game reconstructing it all over again uh with that limitation in mind uh and I, we also took a second crack at all of the variables used, all of the mathematical elements and relationships between how your mouse is manipulated to at least within the core experience, make sure that everyone's experience was consistent and that it did produce as little strain as possible. Um, so we encourage people to take breaks um, while also acknowledging if, if the game doesn't uh work in your hands but we we deeply we deeply regret it and we took all the steps we could to make space for people especially if they take breaks to be able to play regardless i guess it's, a, it's you know gaming is a social experience you know there are ways to experience games without playing them yourself so hopefully people can connect to this in, in a way even if it's not something that they can do themselves um what games inspire you what pieces of media inspire you to create the things you do because the games you make uh are very 
unique genres, right? They're not the most mainstream things. You're not just bouncing on platforms, collecting coins, or, you know, it's not just a first person shooter. What is the inspiration behind the type of art that you want to make? The inspiration changes with every game. Um, because I earnestly believe the more art I experience as a person, the more unique and weird experiences uh, I have uh, as a human being in this world, the richer uh, my games will become, whether it's a totally unrelated line of dialogue in some game uh, I've ended up contributing to, uh, or a fundamental concept of the world. An airport for aliens currently run by dogs was inspired by being a traveler myself, going across the world uh, often for uh, days or weeks, uh, like uh, spending large sections of months away from my family and wanting to express to them that even if I wasn't in the same place, I loved them uh, and that that love did not diminish with distance. In the case of uh, Witch Strandings, yeah, I was going into a fugue state and, and saying, what if, what if the screen wasn't a screen? What if you, your mouse could go beyond the screen? Why is it, why is this, the screen a dictator? Why can't I move from one side of the screen to the other? Why does it extend beyond the screen? Uh, I think games should come from more points of madness, from more points of personal experience. Uh, my first job as a teenager was doing landscaping for a cult, like cutting their grass and uh, finding bomb shelters. Uh, so all of that uh, ends up folding into the games I produce. And it's one of the reasons I'm so active and like listening to music I typically wouldn't or uh, watching movies that I don't even uh wouldn't say that I enjoy or that I come in thinking I will enjoy because I know that piece of art and the process of going through it makes me more human and more able to reach more humans. And my hope would be that the games I make, um, yeah, people are similarly inspired uh, by some small detail, by uh, the fact that it exists at all to go on and create their own radical weird art. What are you most proud of in this game? The thing I'm most proud of in Witch Strandings is the work of my teammates, honestly. Um, Samuel Chayat, uh, Manuela Zabania, uh, Julia Minamata, uh, Ben Chandler, RJ Lake, who does the music and audio for all of Strange Scaffold's games these days. Um, there is a immense amount of talent that has gone into making something very weird and abstract into something that can feel concrete. That effect requires belief. Those people all had to, despite my wild-eyed rantings, believe in what I was saying and how I was saying it and what that world looked like as I described it piece by piece. And, um, I'm just remain eternally grateful for that trust and how you can see the impact of that collaboration across um, every layer of the experience. So I, the people who worked on this put an incredible amount of craft into making something small and intentional and uh, very precisely uh, executed. 
Uh, and I'm really excited to see how players react to that as well. Well, I'd love to hear what you're working on next. Zalavir, it's been a real pleasure speaking to you, um, talking really uh, interestingly about your art, uh, Candid. And, you know, I've, I've really felt, as you said, making those very little connections to uh, characters in this world as I was playing through. And I hope um, when people get a chance to play it, they maybe have already played it by the time they have a listen to this, um, they can uh, have that connection too. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Sifter is produced by Nicholas Kennedy, Fiona Bartholomeus, Daniel Ang and Adam Christou. Mitch Lowe is our senior producer. And my name is Gianni DiGiovanni, and I'm the executive producer. Thanks to Omni Studio for their support of Sifter's three podcasts. You can find links to everything we've talked about on our website, which is sifter.com.au. You can read more about the games and the guests that we've featured. And why not join the Sifter community? You can join us on Discord. Share the creative things that you're working on. Uh, You can go do that by going to sifter.com.au forward slash Discord. People in there share the uh, models they print and paint. They share the games they work on, the art that they create, all of that sort of stuff. You can share it there. We'd love to see what you're working on. So that's sifter.com.au forward slash Discord. And speaking of sharing, the best free thing you can do to support the show is share the show. Tell a friend that you reckon would enjoy this show that they should check us out. Uh, You can send them a link on YouTube if you're watching the video version or if you're listening to your podcast player, just text it to your friend uh, in the podcast player that you enjoy. So share that and that'll make a big difference. That's all the time we have for this episode. Thank you so much for joining us and until next time, have fun. Hi, Chris Button here from Drop Rate, Sifter's video game review podcast. Final Fantasy VII Rebirth is finally here, continuing the ambitious reimagining of a beloved classic. It's very, very funny. I guess like that's that's part of the silliness, you know. Like you have this these really big world-ending stakes. You know, Sephiroth is a really terrifying villain. You know, the world's ending, and I think to have a game that is still fun and pleasant to play, I think maybe the tone is kind of. It's important to strike both tones because you need that levity so that it's not constantly depressing, you know? And I think so having the characters have that humour and like having the mini games and having it be a little bit lighter hearted, I think does give you that hope. Does it uphold the legacy of the famous original or burn Midgar to ashes to forge its own path? Find out on Drop Rate, available now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts.